In a world where fans have grown tired of the same old cookie-cutter Comic-Con formats, only one con defies the odds. Only one Comic-Con stands what fans really want. Only one Comic-Con dares calls itself terrific. That's right, this August 17th through the 19th at the all-new giant-sized Mohegan Sun Expo Center in Uncasville, Connecticut, comes Terrific Con. Connecticut's Terrific Comic Con is back with New England's largest gathering of comic book artists and writers. Plus, Terrific Con delivers actors from your favorite TV shows and movies. And there's an all-new expanded gaming section as we give you tabletop gaming, video games, and so much more. Plus, don't forget, all kids 10 and under get in free at Terrific Con and can be part of the all-new All Yeah Kids Comic Con. Join us for three full days of Comic-Con action only in Connecticut at TerrificCon. For more information, go to our website, www.TerrificCon.com. Avengers Infinity War. Now, nothing will ever be the same. Can anyone make sense out of all that's happened? These guys are going to try. Peter Melnick, local newspaper production associate, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And Eddie Wilson, upstate New York morning radio broadcast announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, inundated with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. What happens next? Listen up, true believers. It's time for another episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And today is a special episode. It is a interview episode. Not with me. No, not with you and not with me. Oh, good. Although we're the ones conducting the interview. That's correct. And that guest himself is Chip Zdarsky, Marvel Comics artist, Marvel Comics writer, and co-creator of Image Comics, Captara, and Sex Criminals. That's a lot. That is a lot. It's... To be able to talk to the guy who's responsible for Marvel 2-in-1, Spectacular Spider-Man, as well as Howard Thuduk, it's really cool to be able to sit and talk with Chip. And we did. But before we get into all that, how can people get a hold of us on social media, Eddie? I'm glad you asked that. I am. Go ahead. Go on Facebook.com slash The Marvelists. And join the 3,000 plus fans on there. Join and share in with the dank maymays. What? I know. And also, go on the Twitter at... The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there. Give myself a follow at Peter Melnick and yourself... At EWilson959. You can also follow us on Instagram at... The Marvelists. You can follow myself on Instagram at Peter Melnick and yourself... At Eddie9193. And finally... Go on Stitcher.com slash premium. Use that promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And be able to enjoy such amazing content such as Wolverine the Long Night from Marvel Studios, as well as the WTF Archives with Mark Marin, Earwolf's many, many fine programs, and Smodcast. Crap ton of Smodcast. A smattering of Smod. Well, that's a different thing now. Smattering versus crap ton. And also, by the way, go on the email bag. Drop us an email. Themarvelous at gmail.com. Questions, comments, strongly worded letters. We'll read them. We'll answer them. We will. I know we will. I believe in you, Eddie. I believe in you, Peter. Eddie, let's get into our interview with Mr. Chip Zadarsky. Yeah. 
So we are joined right now with Marvel Comics writer, Image Comics artist, Chip Zdarsky. Chip, how you doing today? Doing good, you? Pretty good, pretty good. Kind of excited. I get to uh, do my little bit of a fanboy part right now, get this out of the way. I'm a humongous <laughs> fan. You can tell by my Twitter every once in a while I'll uh, inundate you with just random tweets of my complete utter BS, but here it's we are. It's all lovely. It's all lovely. In a positive vein. And there's no kind of. It's, it's definitely <laughs> fan all the way. So first off, before we even get into the topic of Marvel, which this show is about, Chip, mm-hmm. how did you first get into comics as a fan? As a fan? Childhood. Like, I think I was probably about six or seven when, uh, when, when comics just kind of started magically appearing in my house. I don't know um, if it was my parents or r- relatives or friends, but, um, but, but, I, but I remember com- comics kind of being around. I think the Spider-Man TV show had a lot to do with it, like the original one. And after that, I'd say I was around eight, nine, when Secret Wars came out. The first one. Which, yeah, yeah, the first one, which, you know, was so awesome when you're that age. You know, all the heroes and villains coming together to fight. Uh, uh, yeah, places you because I was going to say if you remember also while we're you know starting at the beginning, what you remember your first comic books being, and if you even remember because some of us do remember. Oh, I remember when they cost only you know forty cents and some earlier later that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, I remember this very specifically because it was the first comic that made me have to go find a comic shop. You know, because I picked it up at like a Seven Eleven or something. It was issue seven, and then to get the previous ones, it seemed kind of impossible at the time. And so, you know, we had to do the, the outing to, uh, to find the weird basement comic shop in, in the town, two towns over from me to, uh, to, to actually start collecting. Yeah, that was huge. You know, you find out years later that that entire comic was based on like uh, focus groups to sell toys. And, you know, it's a little dis, a little disheartening, but it's like, well, you know, it, it, it worked. Now, what I want to know is, were there any characters that you gravitated towards during your early days of fandom? Yeah, I mean, Spider-Man. Like, every birthday was Spider-Man themed. Halloween was Spider-Man themed. And uh, I was purchasing a lot of Spider-Man when I was younger. Uh, yeah, uh, so that's the big one. Fantastic Four, X-Men, those were kind of the, the main books that I would make sure to get all the time. You know, Peter David Hulk, when I was getting a bit older. Those are kind of the ones that, yeah, that kind of set me on the path that I was on. My little brother, I convinced him to collect DC books. So um, so I could I could read those uh, when, I, when I wanted to, but didn't have to collect them. And at one point, I convinced him that, uh, that these comics could be worth a lot of money, so I should look after them for him. You were your brother in this case? Yes. Yeah, that, that's that's what older siblings do. Yeah, exactly. Grift their younger siblings. So yeah, that was kind of like the, the origins of it. And then, uh, you know, I collected up until college. I was kind of getting into like the Vertigo stuff at that point. But college, I couldn't afford anything. So I stopped. And then, that's yeah. Because myself, I ended up getting into comics during college and funds were tight then but i i don't know it was weird yeah yeah the, it, it seems to be kind of one or the other i know a lot of guys that got in during college and a lot of guys that got out because of college but i found that after college 
you know, I didn't I didn't have like the itch to buy comics again, but I started kind of following comics online more. Like, you know, I've, I've said it before where it felt like fantasy football. Right. Like I would I would know everything that's happening in the comics. I would know the creators, all the players, all the news, but I wasn't necessarily reading the books. And then one day I realized that I'm an adult and I have a bit of money and I can probably purchase comics again. And, yeah. Yeah. So it was like the JMS period of Spider-Man with John Romita Jr. I think they kind of got me back into reading the Marvel stuff. I've kind of stopped at the Clone Wars. I kind of coincided with college. And yeah, yeah, I've been kind of collecting and reading comics since then. With the JMS run, were there any particular, you know, favorite stories that you got to read? The Moreland stuff. And, you know, it it was JMS, but it was really heavily John Romita Jr.'s art on that. It was just so massive and you kind of felt every panel. And, you know, my favorite kind of stories are the ones where insurmountable odds like the enemy that can't be beat and Moreland just kind of felt like the ultimate version of that and John Romita Jr. depicted the conflict so tremendously I don't know if you guys remember those issues but yeah the like the, the New York kind of battles were just so large and epic and yeah even as an adult I was just like how how are they gonna how is he gonna get out of this like to, to kind of to instill that kind of that child childlike uh, instinct of you know questioning the, the 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 fictional stories when the reality is the writer of course is just going to kind of come up with some way to get them out but to actually feel it is a different thing that's um, the yeah. thing about spider-man as a character we, yeah even myself you know i've been reading the character my whole life and yeah I, even myself i have that feeling too it's absolutely insane yeah 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 so i i, I love that run yeah, yeah, and I just I I kept reading it after that and up through all of Dan's stuff and uh, yeah, and uh, I never read mine, but <laughs> I I heard, I heard it's all right, but uh, yeah, maybe in a few years I'll I'll flip through some issues. One thing I want to ask is, how did you get into doing cartooning in general? Because you ended up working for a major newspaper in Canada. And that's where you really got your foot in the door, I noticed, in the comic book industry, in a way. Yeah, it's weird. The newspaper stuff kind of subsidized me doing my own comics. When I went to school for illustration, I never really considered the idea of doing comics. They, they kind of looked down on them in school. It turns out there were a lot of us in that class that like repressed all of our comic love during college. After I left, uh, my friend Kagan McLeod, who I did the book Captara with, uh, he was self-publishing his uh, own comic called Infinite Kung Fu, which was awesome. It's an amazing book. Um, it was collected by uh, by Top Shelf, uh, if anyone wants to seek it out. But he was self-publishing, and it was kind of kind of gave me the idea, like, well, maybe I, I can do that as well. And so I had like a university strip I did called Prison Funnies, which is like a dark humor strip, you know, black and white. And I kind of I collected them, wrote some new stories, and you know, contacted printers and. and started self-publishing them and, and also putting them online. And Kagan and I would do comic shows together. You know, we never made a lot of money off the books. Like, I think, you know, maybe a thousand bucks an issue total. And that's after, you know, going to like a dozen shows trying to sell them. But uh, but the, I got the newspaper job at the National Post, which helped kind of subsidize that a bit. I was able to work like two, three days a week at the newspaper in the early days. And then... You know, spend the rest of the time uh, drawing comics and 
kind of exploring stupid stuff online. Yeah, yeah. So uh, doing the newspaper stuff helped me do the comic stuff. And then I kind of turned my original kind of more information graphic artist job at the newspaper into kind of a cartoon journalist. So I do a lot of cartooning for them and full illustrations and reporting on things uh, using comics and uh, had a, an advice column for the newspaper called Extremely Bad Advice, which would be like half illustrated and, and half written. So yeah, yeah, like the two kind of like coexisted side by side for a long time. And then the comic stuff kind of uh, died down because I just didn't have enough time because the, the two day a week job turned into a full time job at the paper. Chip, you know, on the note of you saying how you were getting the early stuff you had out, the the uh, the strips, the black and white strips, and so on, mm-hmm. coming up in a different generation, a different era, without, I mean, maybe you thought about it, you know, you could get it out online, and get the word out a little bit easier, quicker. Uh, did you think, man, if I was, you know, fifteen years older, how more difficult would it have been to to try and get this out? Maybe it's 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 interesting because if I'd started this 15 years earlier, it'd still be kind of part of the 90s boom of comics and uh, not a great like, decade. Not a, not a, not not a great decade, but you know if 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 you timed it right, you could do quite well. Like there were a lot of Yiddish indie books that did very very well um, because of the the boom period. Uh, so yeah, I, I, timing wise, it, it probably I probably would have made more money, kind of if if it had happened earlier. But I found I was able to like experiment and do weirder things because I was kind of half online uh, by doing it in kind of the early two thousands. And the message boards really helped as well. Like I met most of my friends in comics, I met on the Warren Ellis forum, which I keep telling every time I do a podcast, I keep telling the people uh, that run them, that somebody needs to do an oral history of that message board. Because Warren Ellis started this thing, and it was kind of the first meeting place for comic creators. And um, that's where, like, Kieran Gill and Jamie McKelvey um, first kind of popped up. I met them. Uh, Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue DeConnick is where they met and got married. Uh, and, and obviously it's where I met Matt as well. Sam Humphreys, Andy Curry at DC, like... There's tons of people that met or kind of started out on that message board. So that helped a great deal. Like you became part of the comics conversation. You got to talk to like established creators, kind of up and coming creators. Um, Uh, Even the term message board, I don't think you hear that much really anymore. And people are probably, some people are saying, well, what's a message board? Yeah. I mean, the Twitter has replaced that for better or worse, like Warren um, ruled that place with an iron fist. If you went against any of his rules, you'd just be banned. Like it was super simple. It kind of reminds me of John Byrne's uh, message board as well, which still goes this day. I, yeah, I I check it out every once in a while. It's kind of like that, but um, Warren's rules made more sense. They weren't, uh, not that John Byrne is, you know, uh, losing it or anything, but uh, maybe he is a little bit. He's a special man. He's a very He's wonderful a man. And Warren's a special man, too, but he understood the idea of growing and creating a community and kind of like a safe area where you could talk about these kind of things. And, you know, all, all the administrators that ran it were women, and I think that helped as well. Like, this, a lot of sexist bullshit would get shut down pretty quickly, uh, which was awesome. Now, Chip, what I want to know is 
when you ended up getting into the main comic book industry, you mm-hmm. ended up doing work on the book Sex Criminals mm-hmm. with Matt Fraction. And you just mentioned that you made a relationship with him through the Warren Ellis boards. Yeah. What led to the creation of Sex Crims? Yeah, it was the kind of thing where, like, uh, like recognizes like. Like, Matt and I had a very similar sense of humor, and uh, I would always seek out his his stuff online or or his books when he kind of started out. And we we main, maintain contact beyond that message board. And uh, yeah, one day it was like we kind of like talked a bit about doing stuff with each other. Matt got pretty busy with uh, his Marvel work. And I was full-time doing the newspaper stuff. But I think we were both kind of having a bit of career dissatisfaction at the same time. Like I found the newspaper stuff was getting a little repetitive. And uh, I didn't quite know where I was going with it anymore. And, uh, you know, Matt was trying to figure it out at Marvel. He kind of had that standard arc at Marvel where you start off on a small title. You kind of move your way up to the bigger characters. You do your big event. And then, you know, and then what after that? And um, I think he was kind of trying to figure out what the what the next thing was. So yeah, we, we, we kind of just started talking about I don't know doing something together. We did a music video together uh, where I did all the uh, the drawings for it, and Matt wrote the script, and we worked well together on that. And yeah, what was the music part? It was uh we both were listeners of the the best show on WFMU. Um, it's it's moved on it's moved on from that station since then. Yeah, it's a podcast but it, now. Yeah, yeah, and you know it was like a, the three hour show once a week and um, super funny and interesting and uh, weird, and they do a pledge drive every year and somehow Matt and I just kind of got together, kind of roped in to do the music video for a uh, a Toronto band, uh, uh, F'd Up. They're a punk band, and. And yeah, yeah, we worked well on it. And yeah, after that, I'm trying to think. There was like one day where I was in Ottawa. I'm from Toronto. Uh, the newspaper sent me to Ottawa to cover a boxing match. Um, was uh, Rob Ford involved? No, but uh, our current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, was. He was a member of parliament at the time, and he was uh, basically boxing a Canadian senator uh, for charity. And it was kind of a big deal, and so I went and I covered that, and um, I didn't sleep that night. I just I was up all day, all night, interviewing people, watching the boxing match, uh, kind of figuring out what kind of cartoon I was going to do. And it was on the train coming back from that that I think just kind of like a little punch drunk from being awake and kind of energized. I just emailed Matt, like, all right, let's just do something. And I pitched him a really leadish uh, idea. And then he pitched back the idea of uh, a couple who, when they have sex, time stops and they rob banks. And that started. The, 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 it's like a three-hour train trip, I think, three or four hour. And the whole trip was just uh, us emailing back and forth. Um, characters, story ideas, um, even like some visual ideas for the time stopping. Like so much was kind of figured out in that, in that train trip. And yeah, it was it was one of those things where Image had wanted Matt to do something for them, and he was ready to do stuff for them. I don't think they would have accepted <laughs> this uh, insane premise unless Matt was the one pitching it. And we thought it would last three issues, 
like because there's no way anyone would buy a book um, drawn by a relatively unknown guy um, with this kind of mature theme. And uh, we were wrong. What, good way. Yeah. What is uh, the most surprising reaction you've gotten towards sex criminals, you know, over the time the series has been around? My God, everything. I mean, for a project that, like I said, like we'd had conversations saying, you know, we'd probably only be able to afford to do three. We'd have to ask Image to advance us money so we could keep doing it so we can get one collection. Like that was the entirety of what we thought it was going to be. And, you know, in that first year, like, uh, you know, even, even like listing it feels like bragging, but it's also surreal. Like we were the Time Magazine comic of the year and debuted at number one on the New York Times list. And we're selling out uh, every issue. I think we did six printings of issue one, seven if you count their image first. Like it was nuts. And like a lot of people asking us for the rights to make TV shows and movies. And it was, it was a whirlwind. Like, and it sounds cliche to say it, but like the first show I did after it came out was a uh, staples in Austin. And I remember my table I'd set up, my friend was there to kind of help me. And Francesco Francavilla, the comic artist, the cover artist, right. he, uh, he was uh, supposed to be right next to me, but he was late. And so there's this massive lineup for him. And, you know, and I just like, like, I remember just setting up my stuff at my table. And, you know, I just kind of sat down as I do at a convention, you know, to like wait for the people to come by and, you know, pitch them the book. And at some point, my friend just like kind of poked me in the arm. She's like, that line's for you. I'm like, that's not possible. That's really weird. And like that was that was the beginning right there. Where I realized, oh, this is something different. And, you know, that year, it felt like every day there was some sort of weird bit of news that kind of came up from uh, sex criminals. Yeah, yeah, literally life-changing. Like there's I, – I, I probably wouldn't be sitting in this house right now with with my wife. Like it's uh, – yeah, it's it's overwhelming, I think, for, for Matt as well. Now I have to ask, what are the what is the latest update in regards to sex criminals in regards to a film or television adaptation of it? Like, has there been any you know change in the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, uh, a few, uh, two, three years ago, you know, it was announced that Universal uh, bought the rights for it, and um, Matt is attached to basically write the series, and uh, there is some news that I can't really say, but. I can say that Matt is uh, deep into the writing of it, so there's a lot of kind of stuff happening. Is it going to be a wish... puppet movie? It'll be a TV show. I can at least say that. It'll be live action, and I cannot confirm the puppets. Well, fingers crossed for puppets, just because. <laughs> yeah, in fact, exactly. I've seen maybe. Yeah. Easter egg. Now also, it's but... so hard to get fluids out of felt. Like that's one of the issues we're finding. Hey, the Henson people are finding a way with that um, new movie. Clear that's plastic out. tubing. I don't know. You see, I'm still keeping it PG friendly. I didn't mention what the fluids are. It's totally up to the parents to explain it to the kids. Alcohol, those fluids. Exactly. Keep the creative process going. Now or, going or no sleep. Now going back to Sex Criminals, the comic. What I want to know is when the first issues were continually selling out, there was one variant cover or a reprint cover. That caught my eye and a lot of other people's, and that's the photo cover with yourself 
and Matt, that which was taken in different locations from what I remember reading in the uh, back of the first uh, Sex Criminals trade. Yep, yep. I want to know, whose idea was that, to do that cover? That was mine, and it was kind of born out of, uh, we just ran out of things that we could do. Because generally speaking, like, the reprint covers were just tweaking the colors on it, you know? Yeah, I've seen that a lot with Marvel especially. Yeah, yeah, because you don't have a lot of time. Like, they basically, like, tell you where it's going back to press. You got a day to kind of, like, figure something out. And we just completely ran out of time. And I had the idea for that cover, and I basically sketched it out, sent it to Matt, got him to get a photo taken, and sent it to me while I slept overnight. And in the morning, I got my wife to take a picture of me to match it. And then by noon, it was done and off to the printer. And the timing really worked out well, too, because we needed, like, you know, like a tagline on it at the top. And... um Matt had just lost his Inhumans job at Marvel, so we were able to write that on there. That uh, the, I think we wrote like the writer of Inhumans, and we just crossed out Inhumans. And mine was, I think, like the guy who speaks to Applebee's online, which was not a thing at the at that time. Like I was doing that, but BuzzFeed hadn't picked it up, so it, it didn't become like an actual story. Uh, the love so affair we're... of you and Applebee's is like that one Canadian Applebee's is my favorite love story. Of <laughs> it's the it's the it's the one thing that will definitely eclipse like sex criminals on my tombstone. <laughs> like I did so much press as a result of that. I was like talking to like radio shows in Australia and like I was on NPR. Like it was very very weird. But yeah, that all worked out like so well. And then basically, you know, the week that the issue came out was when BuzzFeed did the the story on the Applebee's stuff. And yeah, yeah. So it got in front of a lot of eyeballs. That's the strangest way to get promotion for something, but it helps. Yeah. And like right after that, like we do conventions and everybody wanted to get photos with that pose. Like we, we, we often thought about just doing like a backdrop that was just like everything else on the cover except for the figures like the logo and the background and you just like pose in front of it but yeah the time might be passed by now we just look like desperate old men trying to recapture glory days the next con i see you in in 2019 i might have to bug you for one of those photos though not gonna oh yeah yeah for sure and yeah we'll, we'll gladly do it you've also done i believe uh you've grabbed robert kirkman's head i believe in one photo a friend of mine has <laughs> what oh yeah i guess i did yeah <laughs> And I mean, Rob, he he's just a lovable man. You you know, you got you want to grab Kirkman, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a giant disturbed teddy bear. What I would like to know also is you also did another series for image Captara. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell the people at home what Captara is about and why they should read it. Yeah. Captara is uh, myself and the aforementioned Kagan McLeod just kind of going nuts on uh, He-Man. Like we we originally kind of like pitched it as all the toys that you played with as a kid all existing on this one planet, uh, because as a kid when you when you play with toys like they they you'd mix and match like you wouldn't just have Star Wars figures over here and Transformers over there and GI Joes over here like they they'd interact so like we just thought of the idea of like a planet where like Eternia but like there'd be a continent of My Little Ponies. But the problem is Kagan is so good at coming up with and drawing like He-Man based characters that we never quite got to that part of the premise. Like he's, he's, 
so creative and the stuff he does is so funny that you know by the end of Captara we had like a two-page spread featuring like 80 new He-Man style characters um, and we probably could have just kept going and had a couple hundred more uh, yeah yeah so that's a, a thing we did a couple years ago we managed five issues and Kagan has sat on the uh, script for issue six for a couple of years now and uh, it's not looking very good <laughs> I'm going to ask. say <laughs> Um, I, I wish the news was better. I see him every week. Like after this, I'm going to go play squash with him, uh, which we do every week. And it, it used to be we go to play squash and he'd be like, hey, man, just so you know, you know, I've drawn a few pages. I'm like, okay, good. And then, um, then he, he wouldn't mention it as often. Maybe I'd bring it up. And then, yeah, we just kind of stopped talking about it because I recognize that comics are uh, insanely hard to draw. They take so much time and effort, and I think he just wants to feed his family by doing illustrations for more money, and I 100% get that. Now, one of the things about your work at Image is you're a part of a interesting time in that there's so much great content being put out by Image. There was yeah. a lull for a number of years, and then, boom, Image became huge with titles such as Sex Criminals, Saga, Fatal, like all you know, nine thousand of uh, Edward yeah. Baker's other titles, yeah. uh, Black Science, Southern Bastards, yep. Manifest Destiny. Uh, what else? Wicked and Divine, Bitch Planet. Just so many amazing titles, yeah. and you know, what is it like knowing that you're a part of that talent wave? Yeah, it's awesome. It's tricky too because, like, you always want to kind of one up yourself, and so. I think I think everyone's kind of waiting for like that next big wave. Like there've been like um, hits that have come out of Image, but it hasn't come out in 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 that kind of wave feeling. And so I think all of us are just like who are involved with that. We're just like excited, like this is awesome. But also like, oh, when is this going to end? And uh, will our next thing be as big? Like, will the market have changed? So yeah, there's always. <laughs> Is always the uh, the pessimist view of it all, but uh, but yeah, at the time, like it's it's been yeah, it's been pretty incredible. Now, going over to another company, Marvel. You ended mm-hmm. up working with Marvel. What was your initial contact with Marvel, and what was it for? The first thing was I'm trying to think which was the first. I did a cover for uh, Original Sins, which was like the kind of. Uh, anthology oh no it was original sin it was the it was the main book and it was like a deadpool variant and so that was the first thing i did for them and i kind of went above and beyond on it because they wanted to do like a pencil sketch version for i think it was san diego comic-con as well so they asked me for the pencils and i'm like well i did it digitally there's no pencils but i i sent them a version in which i redid it in pencil but I did everything wrong on it, and I wrote editor's notes saying what's wrong with it, including like Batman's belt was there. I gave him like, <laughs> I gave him like a six pack on his leg. Like I just, I just went all in, and uh, and I I think I think they loved it, and they recognized like oh yeah this we should hire this guy again because he's fun to work with and he hits his deadlines, and uh, after that Will Moss. Uh, an editor contacted me to do it was a two page gag strip in original sins, which was the anthology title. And I kind of thought that would be my only Marvel thing. And so I just kind of went all out and did like 
uh, like a hundred panels on the two pages of like all these characters uh, that I wanted to draw. And again, they really liked it. So when the Guardians of the Galaxy movie came out and Howard the Duck showed up at the end, uh, Will called me and was like, hey, did you see Guardians? I'm like, yeah. He's like, Howard's in it. I'm like, yeah. He's like, I think we could pitch a series now. Like just that cameo was enough for him to think that we could maybe get the green light on a new series. So I'm I'm forever in debt to uh, James Gunn for throwing Howard in because I don't think I'd be at Marvel if it wasn't for that. And uh, yeah, yeah, we we did like 16 issues of Howard. We we could have kept doing more, but I think Joe and I were like, all right, we did it. And the thing is with Howard the Duck is it's one of the most underrated runs you know in recent memory. It's you know spawned so many things, including your very first interaction with the character of Spider Hyphen Man. <laughs> That's true. And it, yeah, well, uh, oh, I was, was going to say the um, my instinct on that was the same as on the uh, the two page gagster for original sins, which was this is going to be my only Marvel thing. So I had to put Spider Man and She Hulk in issue one, so I could like say that I wrote those characters because I assumed it'd be canceled at issue two. And with that Spider Man moment, tell the people at home what that moment was if they have not seen that Spider Man issue. I'm of course referring to Uncle Ben. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, basically it's, a, it's a Spider-Man um, ignoring Howard and then uh, realizing that Howard's been murdered and uh, and collapsing in a puddle of his own grief, saying, uh, Uncle Ben, no, Uncle Ben, no, over and over again. Uh, yeah, yeah, it sums up Spider-Man, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> I think he says, like, it's happened again or something. I don't know. It's, yeah. I think the line of "Why am I so bad at this?" really, oh yeah, that too, <laughs> really encapsulates the quote-unquote Parker luck and just Peter Parker in a hole. Yeah, like I was recently reading, you know, the amazing fantasy arc that you did in Spectacular, and mm. just that line of "Things never do get better for me, do they?" No, they don't. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky because, like, yeah, he should technically be better at it by now. It's been what sixty years. But you you lose so much of the character by um, making him competent. Yeah, and I feel competent is something that another character, like I said, that you've not that that you have worked on, Howard the Duck. Howard is a very incompetent character, and mm. I loved your run on that character because it was just such a fun title and a strange sense of humor that while it didn't match the tone of the Steve Gerber run it gave its own style and own variety to it that was a breath of fresh air for you know comic readers such as myself yeah that was the tricky thing with taking it over um I think if Steve Gerber was still alive I I wouldn't have touched it I'd just be like well just get Gerber to do it like it's 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 so distinctly his voice that I didn't want to replicate the voice because it would just be like third-rate Gerber instead of just failed Zdarsky, which I think is is is, is, is much better to have. Um, so, yeah, you kind of want you want the core of the character, which is, you know, kind of loneliness. There's some anger. There's some sadness. Um, but, uh, but put your own spin on it. And having Joe Canonis as the artist, like his redesign was, um, was awesome. 
and it made it feel like kind of a different character than before, which helped. It was I, I love Joe's work on that as well because yeah, it's yeah. very clean and the line work is so crisp and it's also like it feels animated. Like you can look at these panels and you can see the motion going through them. Yeah. No, he's he's awesome. He's so great to work with. And it's awesome to see that you have collaborated with him so many times, you know, even going over to DC briefly for just you know, <laughs> Yeah. I know, I know. Like uh when they got that gig, I just did like a Harley Quinn eight pager for like their anniversary special and I immediately said like we have to have Joe draw this because I know what a huge fan he is and um just him doing that kind of Joe take on the animated style was so gorgeous. Now one thing I wanna know is with Howard, were there any other things that you wanted to do with the title or once, you know, the sixteen issues were done, that was it? I th- I think that that was it. Though I mean there were always like a couple of ideas that would like kind of pop up in the back of my head while I was uh, writing it, but it felt like a good exit point. Like you don't want to overstay your welcome on a thing like that. And, and there was kind of like just enough cohesion from the first issue to like the 16th issue that it felt like a full story, which I really liked. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it felt right to leave it. Like I think Joe had drawn a lot of Howard issues and I think he was itching to do something different um, and I didn't want to do it without Joe and so I think we both kind of mutually came to the decision okay it's you know let's let's end it here and we were kind of hoping they'd put somebody new on the book but I, and there were always talks about kind of restarting with somebody new but it hasn't quite happened yet but I'm going to say within like two months of leaving the book I think both Joe and I were like oh man like I miss that book like it's not a regret, but it's. Um, I, I think I think Joe and I are probably going to work together again on on something Howardish in the near future. Uh, as a result of it. And one of the things with your run on Howard was you actually got to team up with Ryan North for a crossover mm-hmm. with Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. How did yeah. that come about? Uh, mostly just because like Ryan and I are friends, and we were both in Toronto. And we were both kind of writing the weird animal-themed humor books. And it just made sense. I think we just we went for lunch one day, and we just kind of started talking about it. And um, next thing we knew, we were going for lunch every couple of weeks just to, like, break out the story. And it was the same editor, too, Will Moss, on both books. So it, it made sense. Yeah, that was a ton of fun. And then Squirrel Girl is such Ryan's voice, like... I, I think it would be really daunting to write Squirrel Girl um, without consulting Ryan. Like, it was good to have him to look over my scripts and, and tweak her dialogue a bit. Yeah, I don't I don't know what they're going to do when Ryan leaves. If Ryan leaves, I should say. Yeah, the one thing with your run, you know, with, with Howard and then Ryan's run with Squirrel Girl, it was perfect to, you know, do a crossover also because the fans of a Howard the Duck will more than likely also be reading the same title, you know, as uh, yeah. Squirrel Girl. Like, yeah, they're, they're distinct books, but they're, you know, they're both fun, um, humor-based, so it, it made sense that the audience would be similar. Absolutely. And then, you know, after you finished your run on Howard, you ended up going on in 2016 to do the Shirtless Adventures of Star-Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I recently saw the tweet, and yeah, that was one one of the impressions I got with it. He really is—he really does not like clothing. No, no, and that that was um, 
that was one of uh, Chris Anka's stipulations when he came on board the book. He basically he asked me two things. He said um, he wanted to choreograph his own fight scenes, and he wanted um, Star Lord to be shirtless at least once an issue. And it was a uh, there. There was one moment when. Uh, there was an issue where I couldn't I couldn't have him without his shirt. Like there were no scenes where he could be shirtless, and it was like when I got the drawings back from Chris, um, it was like a fight scene where he's fighting some guys in a warehouse and he gets knocked out and he, and he wakes up and he's in a chair. And between getting knocked out and waking up in the chair, he loses his shirt, and it's never explained. That's common fight protocol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the shirt got torn a bit, but like where the bad guy's like, oh, the shirt's ruined. He'll thank us later for just getting rid of it. Like it makes no sense. <laughs> but it was so perfect that I'm like, oh, we got to just leave it and never explain it. Now, with Star Lord, how did you get onto that title? Uh, yeah, that was, uh, there was this period while I was working on Howard that um, editors were asking me if I wanted to do certain titles and, and I kept saying no because partly because they weren't the right fit and I didn't have any ideas for them. And partly because I'm still drawing sex criminals and that's the full-time job. Like, like 50 hours a week is spent uh, drawing, lettering, coloring that book. And so there wasn't a lot of time, but star Lord, I knew was kind of coming up right around when Howard was ending and I knew Bendis was um, doing some cool things with the Guardians that would reflect in our book. So I, I felt like I kind of had to do it. And, and you know, the idea the idea for that art kind of came pretty quickly. And as soon as they kind of pitched Chris Anka and Matt Wilson for art, I was like, oh, yeah, we, we have to do this. Um, it did not last long. We did six issues uh, plus an annual. Um, I'm super proud of them. Like... I think as a collection, it's a it's a lot of fun. But yeah, I think some bad timing there, and couldn't quite find the audience. I remember reading somewhere that it was like it wasn't intended to be a mini series, but it became one as a result of that. I believe. Yeah, like I think that's kind of the standard way it works. Like if they could, if they could have milked it for longer, like I had like thirteen kind of issues planned out, um, but I got the phone call pretty quickly that it was canceled. Like, I, I think I got the phone call, like, the day issue two came out. I actually find or, it interesting that uh, the character Drax manages to get a longer run. Yeah. And it was written by the wrestler CM Punk as well, so it's... Uh, that helps, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it was it was weird to get the call, like, that early. Um, but I was grateful I got it because it, it um, helped me and Chris kind of plan out what we wanted to do a bit better not make it as kind of open-ended like we had a kind of a full story so yeah yeah unfortunately it got canceled but i'm glad that they figured that out pretty quickly now with with this when you ended up going over to your next title peter parker the spectacular spider-man i'm pretty sure that was child zadarsky's dream come true oh yeah 100 percent. I, I still hesitated i still hesitated I think I think they'd they'd seen me write Spider Man and Howard and then knew I could do kind of like the funny stuff. And I had Spider Man show up and like I did a Doctor Strange one shot for Monsters Unleashed 
where Spidey featured in it. And that kind of showed him a bit more kind of in his standard uh, setting. So I, I think they, they recognize that I could work on a title like that. But even still, I'm like, oh, when they called me, I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's like, if it's the best time, I don't know if I'm up for it. Like, like there was a feeling that I had that I was worried I was going to uh, let the character down or let them down somehow. But yeah, eventually I kind of got over that. And, and once I had the story idea, I, I said yes. And yeah, yeah, it's been a ton of fun. I'll tell you what, Chip, just having read one of the issues, because like I said, I'm way behind. Um, but Peter says to me, you've got to, you have it, read number issue six, the Jonah and Spidey yeah, yeah. issue. I said, yeah. oh, okay, on the cover. And in fact, the cover reminds me of like a Norman Rockwell thing because it's in circle. Yeah. It's not a full-blown picture, but it's, you know, Dinner with Jonah. And wow, the content, the, the seriousness. The, yeah, yeah, especially when we get to the end there. Uh, so now I have to back up, and then I say I got to see where it goes from there. Uh, yeah. But but very heavy, you know, material. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was a, a calculated risk because you know the the mo for the book was to have it be kind of a lighter feeling book, you know, New York based, you know, Spidey being traditional Spidey. And so we we set out to kind of make this kind of fun, light book, but we also wanted the surprise of the seriousness. Like that's kind of my favorite storytelling thing is where you have like lighthearted, fun stuff happen and then a serious thing happens and it feels more serious as a result. Yeah. You're, uh, you're, 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 you know, you're juggling, I think, a few balls there metaphorically with, uh, yeah. with the quips of Spidey and the seriousness of Jonah and him just, you know, cutting him vocally, verbally with, with every yeah. jab that he tries to make and and to, to uh, lighten the, the mood and, and everything, and then the, then the whammo you know at the end with the with the reveal. Yeah, the reveal came late. Like the uh, I knew I wanted to do uh, the Jonah issue, and my plan was basically how that issue unfolds, but without the reveal. Like Peter gets called away and they're kind of left unresolved. But the more I thought about it, and the more I was kind of like working on the issue, I realized it this is a story potential. So at that point now I had to kind of convince the editors that this was worth um, revealing the identity because they don't like that. That's the one thing like you have to really, it has to really matter if, uh, if, if somebody finds out about uh, Peter Parker. It is interesting though, that in the movies now, the new movie uh, Avengers infinity war, Peter immediately tells Doctor Strange who he is, so it's... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a bond amongst heroes. Um, yeah, but I, th I think it took, you know, a couple of phone calls, some emails, and then I got uh, the editors on board uh, once I kind of revealed what stories could come out of this as a result, because uh, ultimately that's what they want. They want good stories, so that, that helped the decision a lot. And while the reveal of, you know, Peter being Spidey to Jonah has been done before, I feel yours is a much more impactful one because now we have that one story thread of he is related to Peter, you know, through marriage. Mm -hmm. It's such a much better way to do this. And I love you for doing that, you know? Yeah, like I went, I was going to say, I went back and I kind of reread like the kind of the Civil War era uh, stuff where Jonah finds out and he's more angry than anything. But yeah, the 
the the more kind of interwoven the characters are now, kind of I I, I figured would change the dynamic, and Jonah being a, kind of a low point as well. Uh, he's got so a yeah, nice blog. he's got he's got a nice blog, threatsandmenaces.com. <laughs> which you know, I didn't also, register. I mean, it doesn't need me to say it, but I will anyway. That you're getting more, um, more rounded perspective of the Jonah character, and I think feel, yeah. feeling more than you might have previously for him and his his path, his his plight, his obsession, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and the, you know what? One of the really fun parts out of all of this is the fact that uh, Dan picked up the threads in Amazing and did so many cool things with that reveal that uh, that I, I didn't expect. Like, when I found out uh, the stuff he was going to be doing with uh, Jonah and Peter, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like, to, to, to have introduced an element um, in the secondary Spider-Man book and have it being picked up in the main book is, is a really good feeling because, like, there is kind of the... We're, we're the younger sibling. You know, if you want the kind of the meat and potatoes story that you know sets sets the scene amazing spider-man's that book and we're kind of the the, the fun weird book that kind of uh, skirts around it so to actually like introduce an element that, that pays off an amazing spider-man it was like so rewarding like picking up that issue and, and reading it i'm like ah oh, yeah this is awesome Stuart imminent drawing jonah and you know dan doing all this stuff it was yeah super rewarding and that's the best thing again you know a about that relationship between Spidey and Jonah now that you've created, there's that sense of conflict. Do I end up, you know, giving him up for yeah. web hits and money in this? But he's yeah. family. Yeah. That's yeah. so great. Yeah, there's 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 some fun stuff coming too, not not only with like our book, but when Nick Spencer takes over, um, he's got a lot of great Jonah stuff as well. So the Spider-Man annual, I, I, there's a uh, Spectacular Spider-Man annual that's coming out. Uh, where I wrote the main story and uh, Mike Allred drew it, and it's a it's a very Jonah centric issue, and I'm super proud of it. Like I think it um, it reveals a few things about the character and his history of Spider-Man that uh, it feels like kind of the sequel to that issue six. So yeah, I'm hoping people check it out. Eddie, enough said there. Yeah, definitely. Um, Chip, without saying too much. What uh, what breaks down your uh, I don't know how's your work schedule go uh, you know like you know it's, 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 I'm sure there's certain times where you you're in the zone you have to you know you you hunker down and, and get some stuff cranked out whatever but how um I guess it's fluid somewhat too but just a little um, thumbnail sketch on that if you want it's a it's crazy um, I tend to start work these days around seven seven thirty. Sometimes maybe uh, I push it till eight. Uh, and so the beginning of my day is, you know, me with tea and a bagel and my laptop and a coffee shop. And I, I write, uh, just kind of work on whatever script uh, needs, you know, the fire putting out the most. Uh, so I do that usually until 10 or 11. And then I, I get back to the studio and, uh, and start drawing sex criminals. And the last couple of issues I've been trying, I've been shooting for like two pages a day. It, it gets a little tricky depending on, on the pages, but usually usually I can get it done before uh, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening. Uh, and that's when my wife usually comes home from her job and we can just collapse in each other's arms and then do it all over again the next day. 
and the weekends are usually reserved for writing. Uh, I'm trying a new thing where I take a day off on the weekend, but it hasn't quite worked out yet because I find the weekends are the best time to just like totally focus on the writing, just like hole up and just turn the internet off and, and, and go out of script until it's done. But it's funny, the, 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 the week, the week gets really broken up because, um, I didn't realize it before I started Marvel, but there's so many stages, even if you're just the writer, like there's obviously the edits that come back that you have to take care of, but you also like look over the layouts for any issue to see if there's things that need changing. And then when it's drawn, you have another pass at the script to make sure it matches up to the art. And then when it's lettered, you look at it again to fix things at that stage as well. So there's so many, there's so many stages that kind of pop up during the day that kind of interrupt the sex criminal stuff. Yeah. It can throw days into disarray. Well, you know what, Chip, there's two things you said, and I got to kind of like take point on when you said just the writer, me growing up reading comic books, recognizing names as I'm reading them and seeing them at the bottom, usually of the front page until they started getting creative and put them inside at the back of the issue, whatever, you know, writer, who wrote it? Who drew it? Those are the top two names. Those, I think, are the top two command posts or you know heads yeah. of, of the whole squad of everybody else that follows. You know, I think underneath it. So so don't uh, you know discredit yourself like that. You're you know. No, no, but like uh, since I'm also an artist, I recognize that the labor of the artist is um, much more intense. Like it takes me. Partly it's because I do everything on sex criminals. Like. Uh, the coloring, lettering, inking, design, some added jokes here and there. It takes seven weeks to do an issue, and that's as a full-time job. Uh, a, a Marvel script will take three days. Uh, so, I mean, you're thinking about the scripts as you go along. Uh, issue one will take a lot longer, obviously, but the standard, if you're just sitting down and writing, it takes about three to four days. So three to four days versus seven weeks, like... It's <laughs> there's a huge difference there, and uh, and so I'm always conscious of that, like working on the Marvel books with artists, um, knowing uh, how much more uh, labor they're putting into the books, and they're sitting with it longer. Like I might move on to start writing something else, drawing something else, but you know, always listen to your artist. If your artist, you know, points out a thing that they're not jiving with with the story you got to listen to them because they're the ones that are sitting with it every day. Like they sit down every day and think about the book. Sure. Uh, even if you're only thinking about the book, you know, uh, one week out of the month. I so, think yeah. it's really good though in general that, uh, and I'm hearing you saying, you know, the stuff that goes into it, at least in some percentage of it, that, that people who hear the podcast and, and try to get a little more understanding of how comic books are actually made and put together that such, you know, deadlines and you know you're on a you're on a timetable you're on a schedule things have to be done yeah. a certain amount of time and that's the way it's been i think from the beginning but it's good to hear that you know externally once in a while to remember how it all comes to your favorite store that you just pick it up for four bucks or whatever anyone who decides to be a comic artist um there's something wrong with them because it is without a doubt the hardest um, job in the arts that I can think of because you have to be so many different things. Like you have to be like a cinematographer in terms of like a, a, a storyteller. You have to yeah. be great with anatomy. You have to understand fashion. You have to understand architecture. 
Um, you have to understand like how to draw cars. Like you have to draw everything. You have to like create all these things. Like on any movie or TV show or video game, like there are people who have specific jobs. Uh, and the comics, all of those jobs just kind of roll into one. And, and you have to do it at a pace that is kind of unheard of. Like as an illustrator, as a freelance illustrator, like if you did like an illustration a day, that'd be crazy. Like that's a ton of work. But a comic artist has to do like six or seven illustrations a day. Cause they, and they all have to fit together on a page and they have to be consistent. Like it's really, really nuts. There's some who are up to it, and uh, you know, kudos to them and stuff. Real quick, I was thinking, what could be the total polar 180 degree opposite of that kind of job? And the first thing that came to my mind, and I'm sorry, I apologize if I'm wrong, is somebody who would be like an abstract painter, because you can just throw anything down, and yeah, it's this, and you know, other people can say no, I think it's this, and yeah, I mean, the 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 catch with the abstract painter is it's a lot harder to tell if they're doing it right. <laughs> Like like with comics, that's the other thing. You can look at a page that somebody's you know spent a days on and go, oh, that arm's off. Oh, that car doesn't look right. Like, <laughs> which which means like you can you can figure out how to get better at it. Whereas with abstract art, it's hard to figure out if you're getting better at it. You know, I don't want to throw abstract artists under the bus. Like it's it can be a hard job, um, and there's uh, almost nobody makes money off of it. But yeah, I get that. Now, Chip, what I want to know is, since you've been working on Spider-Man, you've had a lot more, you know, a lot more experience than you ever had before with the character. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is, in your time since, who have you realized are some of your biggest influences on the title now from, pre, you know, Spider-Man years past? Oh, that's tricky. Because I've noticed, like, there are times, like, you'll reference, like, a really obscure Spider-Man story as a, you know, source of influence. Yeah. It's so cool. I like, you know, that you have the deep cuts for these, you know, for the character. Yeah, deep cuts are tricky because it, it uh, kind of, it reveals that too much has happened to a character. Um, but, yeah, like, the Roger Stern issues really hold up. Um yeah, the JMS stuff does as well, for sure. Uh, I found myself more influenced by Dan Slott. Um, I, I don't think I realized how much he'd be in my head as I was kind of working on the book. Um, I never consciously said, you know, what would Dan do here? But, like, you kind of want to get the feeling of what's happening in Spider-Man right now. So he's a pretty direct influence. And, yeah. Yeah, I can't... I can't... It's tricky. Like there's there's specific issues, you know, talking about the Moreland stuff with JMS and Darmita Jr. for sure. Um, yeah, those are those are pretty big in my head. I always go back to a similar kind of feeling, which was like a uh, Spider-Man versus Fire Lord issue, which was which was bonkers. Him fighting a Herald of Galactus, but a really well done issue because it shows it shows him up against like an unbeatable guy. Um, it shows his interactions with New Yorkers, both good and bad, throughout the whole thing. It shows the other heroes like recognizing that Spider-Man is more impressive than even he realizes. Like, it's a super solid issue. Yeah, yeah. There's there's tons. Now, Chip, 
I also I'm interested in knowing. Do you happen to have any Steve Ditko stories since your time becoming a <laughs> you know writer? No, God, I wish. Um, you know, people tell me they're Steve Ditko stories, but uh, um, no, no, I'm I'm way too uh, respectful of where he's at right now. I have the same thing with Stan Lee. Like I have no desire to meet either of those guys. You've never met Stan. I've never met Stan. Um, and I don't know, like Stan's like 95. Uh, Ditko is what? He's got to be 90 something. I think at this point, early nineties, ladies, early nineties. Like I just want those guys to be left alone. Like, you know, the stuff with Stan Lee right now just breaks my heart. And I just don't want to be another guy that comes up to him and says, yeah, oh, you mean so much to me. And like Stan can't see you. And he just like won't remember anything. And yeah. Yeah. All, all the stuff, every video, every kind of tweet that's clearly not by him. Um, that's out there. Just like breaks my heart a bit. Oh, come and on. Did, Stan and... is always talking about uh, DC shows on social media and, you know, random <laughs> yeah. you know video games. Oh God. And, and Ditko is like, you know, he's approachable. Like you can find Ditko. It's not the hardest thing to do. I've known a lot of people that have done it. Um, it never ends well. So, uh, why would I want to put him through anything and myself? Like, yeah. So I, I avoid it. I like hearing other people's stories about those guys, but they deserve to be left alone. Right. You know, that is, that is chip mighty noble of you to say that and stuff. And, and hopefully, you know, because I'm just thinking at a base level, I was fortunate enough to actually meet him for like three and a half seconds, got a photo. We're actually shaking hands, so it's a great moment. Yeah. And, so, and it was over. And and it's great. I mean, I think he was only only 89 at the time. Yeah. But, but I would think, yeah, I understand your, your sentiment in saying leave him alone. I would, I would I'm going to assume on my part to ask you that if you did have the opportunity on a, you know, non-hyper-stressed environment situation, wouldn't you possibly want to just just give a thank you and you know for for inventing the medium or for for laying the groundwork that you can now be a part of and that yeah of, that know, stuff's by giving him a just the compliment not you know blowing something the, up his skirt whatever that kind of thing the only thing i'd want to do if i met stanley was make him laugh like that's literally it like i think I get the instinct to thank him for this. And like, um, and I, I think everyone that meets him does that. And, you know, rightfully so. I call him dad. <laughs> See, there you, you go. You can call him grandpa. Um, but, but in the back of my head, I'm always thinking, um, he doesn't own the characters. You know, they've, 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 they've obviously made him wealthy to a certain degree, but there's the weird distance of it that I think might might be in his head a bit like I don't know I read the uh, like the the untold history of Marvel comics and you know there's a lot of stuff in there about like there's an underlying sadness I think and you have to be really careful when you meet creators of these characters that they do not own and that they, they have seen get turned into billion dollar properties because the instinct is always to like uh, thank them for it and like um kind of go out of your way to like talk about all the stuff that they've created and built up. But you also have to recognize that like there might be some residual hurt there. 
because it is definitely a generation that did not realize what this could become. Um, so I think if I ever, you know, uh, met Stanley, I would just want to like, I don't know, just joke around with him, you know, bring some sort of happiness to his day that isn't the kind of the same old, same old, uh, which would be, you know, everyone thanking him. Like the, the thank you is nice, but the thank you is also like, yeah, it feels, it feels like a tricky thing. Yeah, like nobody would thank Steve Ditko for creating Spider-Man. That's that's just forget that. Like that's just a can of worms. I thanked him. <laughs> I actually sent him a letter once, and I thanked him about thanked him for his work on uh, Captain Adam. Just like how yeah. trippy that was, and as well as Doctor Strange. And then he wrote me a long letter about how comics are going to die one day. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is sweet. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the thing. You just don't want to open those kind of wounds, even if they themselves don't think that they're wounds. Because clearly it is like Steve Ditko and his objectivist um, outlook on life. Yeah, that didn't just happen overnight. Now, Chip, before we wrap this up, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is in the future of Spider? Remove the hyphen man. <sighs> Death and destruction. Well, we've got the the annual coming out. Um, um, Adam. Uh, Adam and Juan are um, finishing off the kind of the, the big arc that we've been working on with the, the aliens and the tinkerer and um, uh, Chris Bacallo is doing a two part Sandman story, which is going to be just awesome. Like he's one of my favorite artists and uh, yeah. Yeah. I sent him the script for the first issue of that a couple of weeks ago and uh, I'm really jazzed about it. It kind of changes up Sandman. It kind of like gives him a new status quo, which I think is 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 fun to do uh, every now and then with a character like that. And yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about after. I've got an issue that I'm drawing. Really? As of as of now, yeah, yeah. We've got a break between issues of Sex Criminals. Um, and so I'm taking that opportunity to draw an issue. I mean, I, I think I am anyways. <laughs> they've, they've said I am. and I've, 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 they tell you otherwise. Exactly. I've been working on layouts all day. And like if I send them in tomorrow and they say this is garbage, then um, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm not drawing an issue with Spider-Man. And, uh, and yeah. And then beyond that, there's, uh, there's Spider-Geddon and um, Nick Spencer's new status quo stuff. And... Yeah, I can't say much beyond that. Happy to still be working. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to still be working. 100%. Will, and, will Spectacular actually be affected by the upcoming renumbering or no? I have no clue about the renumbering stuff. I like, think actually after this issue six that we've been talking about, it did change to the higher numbers. It, it changed to legacy numbering, as they're calling it. I don't know what the plan is that there's going to be a new number one with the legacy numbering. Like I, I didn't know I was a legacy book. Like, uh, like honestly, I, I got an email when they were like rolling out the legacy stuff. And then I got an email that was sent to a bunch of creators saying, you know, if you're receiving this, you're a legacy book. And, you know, we're announcing it today. And I just like wrote back, like, am I a legacy book as a no joke? Chip. Cause I, cause I didn't think I was, cause I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I did. I haven't been doing it this long, and I didn't quite understand what it was. And then I found out. Yeah, I am a legacy book. 
How did that make you feel when one of your first few issues on Spectacular was a 300 milestone issue? Well, it really messed me up. I'll tell you that much because uh, on an emotional level, it was amazing because I bought the issue 100 when I was a kid, which featured Black Cat and Kingpin and The Spot, which is awesome. Um, so on that level, I'm like, this is amazing. On another level, no, spectacular. What's that? No, spectacular. Oh, spectacular. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, but on the on the other hand, it completely messed with um, uh, my issue by issue plot because all of a sudden we had to have a big issue 300. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> oh man, I got to combine these things and rework these things, and yeah, yeah. So it uh, it, it threw me for a loop. But I kind of realized early on that. When you're working for like Marvel or DC, you gotta you gotta kind of roll with the punches because you could be. I've had it before where you're you're writing a character in your comic and you find out that they're dead and they cannot be in that comic anymore. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, this happens. It's the double-edged, you know, sword of continuity. You're you're able to use continuity to like create kind of an emotional connection uh, with the history of a character. Uh, to your advantage as a writer, but also continuity can just like mess with you in terms of availability and what's happened to the characters. Now, before we go, Chip, how can people get a hold of you on social media and the worldwide interweb in general? Um, basically, anything Zadarsky. Like on, on Twitter, I'm at Zadarsky, Tumblr, I'm Zadarsky, Instagram, I'm Zadarsky. Yeah, I think that covers most of the bases. I think on Facebook, I'm. Sith Lord 3000 or something like that. Some dumb joke that ended up being the username. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm getting more into Instagram these days. I, I recently less... saw the spot of tea with Batman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, it, it's nice to document your day. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what's going on with me. I'm doing Marvel 2 in 1 as well. And um, yeah. Ta-da! Chip, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Spectacular. Thank you so much. A spectacular pleasure was had by me. Marvel 2-in-1. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was close. See? There you go. You can say fantastic for that one. All righty. <laughs> Once again, major, major thank you to Chip Zdarsky for guesting on this fine show. Thank you, Major. All right, Chip. <laughs> If you can, check out his brand new Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 1 that has just recently come out, as well as Sex Criminals, which just hit issue number 25, Spectacular Spider-Man, which hit 300+, plus, and Marvel 2-in-1, which I believe just hit number 7. Before we go, how can people get a hold of us on social media? I'm glad I asked that. Yeah, me too. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Join the 3,000-plus fans on that page and like us on there. Go on Twitter at The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there. Or individually at Peter Melnick. At EWilson959. You can also find us on Instagram collectively as at The Marvelists. You can also find myself on Instagram at Peter Melnick, yourself. At Eddie9193. Also drop us a line in our email bag, question, comments, strongly worded letters. You name them, we'll answer them. And finally, go on Stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And be able to sign up and listen to things such as Wolverine, The Long Night from Marvel Studios, the WTF Archive with Mark Marin, 
Smodcast, as well as some of the stuff from Earwolf. Oh, yeah, and a ton of stand-up comedy albums. So, go to stitcher.com slash premium, sign up for a free one-month trial, and you can cancel it any time if you don't like it, but you're helping out this here fine show. Program, even. Exactly. Program, even. Program? But go to stitcher.com slash premium, use that promo code at checkout. Say it one more time, Eddie. One more time, Eddie. Marvelous. Uh, For Peter Melnick, I'm Peter Melnick. Thank God. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior.